The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 48 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is legendary jazz fusion drummer, keyboardist, and composer and band leader, Gary Husband. If you're not familiar with Gary Husband, be ready for an onslaught of really incredible musicianship, drumming, keyboard and playing, concepts, philosophies. Um, he's one of my, my favorite, all-time favorites. To put him in a little bit of perspective historically, if you think of Tony Williams and Billy Cobham and Jack DeJunette sort of creating the fusion style, establishing the genre, Gary sits right in that next group of people that came up after that. That would be include, you know, Vinny Cayuta and Chad Wack. Ackerman, um, and Gary sits right in that mix. So we dig deep into the creative process. His, you know, actually we start out just going right into the gear talk. So if you're here for some gear talk, we're going to get started right away. But before we jump into the interview, make sure um, do yourself a favor, go over to GaryHusband.com. He's got some incredible video lessons there available for streaming. Um, he calls them videocasts. Some really, really nice stuff there. He also has a new record out with a band that's called Trekkers, and the album is called Vaudeville 845. Definitely go give that a listen. It's available for purchase on his website. Again, that's GaryHusband.com, or you can stream it online. All right, let's get to it with the legendary Gary Husband. Well, hey, let's talk about gear right away then. What is your current setup? What is the current, like, drum shells? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the drum shells. Well, the drum shells, for anybody who's seen um, anybody, uh, any of the video casts I've been doing, they, mm-hmm. these are available via my website, and they're kind of a motivational course. And, and largely throughout that series has been featured my red double kit with, with mm-hmm. two 22-by-16-inch bass drums and uh, a multitude of toms and uh, whatever. And that's, that's like a master's... Uh, uh, pretty much a, a sort of master sound, uh, straight sort of three or four ply, um, but with die cast hoops, and it's and it's got a little modification on the way we cut the the bearing edges on the floor toms, just mm. to kind of focus them a little. But they're largely all sort of uh, thin shells with no die cast hoops and stuff, mm. and. Um, it sort of works for me that way, you know, it, it, they, they really, really speak and I can really get into the nitty gritty of hitting the drum the way I want to, which is, you know, most of all around the center. So I get the full range of, of the sound. It's very little in the way of damping that I use. I'm, I'm pretty much an old fashioned guy in the sense that uh, everything's open and tight and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm from that league, really. So, so is uh, that that big kit kind of what you start with, and then you pull pieces away, or do you, I mean, how do you build a kit out for well, each project? Well, we just sort of like have that kit to get people in, really. Okay. <laughs> no, no, we no, we don't. I, actually, there is an interesting thing with the color. I, I got them to bring back a color from the nineties, Sequoia Red. They called mm-hmm. it, which was a really, really neat red, and nothing else they had came up to what that red was, you know, so I eventually sort of got them to do that. Um, and in the first place, just to make those those um, shells as thin as that, 
um, without reinforcement hoops was was something I had to really fight for a little bit, you know, mm. um, because they just said they won't they won't tolerate what you're going to give them, you know. Mm. Well, we, we know you're going to give them, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, plenty. So. Um, and, and actually I had a, it's the, the red kit's predecessor, which was a white one, exactly the same shells. Um, although slightly different depths, uh, the red kit, we have an extra inch to everything. So it's kind of like midway going towards a more of a power tom dimension. Mm. So, I mean, there, there are various little sort of, um, tweaks and things on their regular stuff on, on that kit for me. Um, plus the gong drum, mm -hmm. which, Thank you, Billy Cobham, 1974, you know, <laughs> came into prominence with, with me. I, I just loved that bottom end thing. Yeah. And uh, there it all is, really. And uh, it, it's it, it's there because the, the, the kit, what, what I'm really trying to express through the videos as well is, is the fact that I'm using everything. So, I, I mean, everything's there f for a reason. And it's... And it's um, I like to play that many drums or that size of a kit because I feel that it's musically beneficial to have that kind of a range, a dimension to a kit the, than it is for a small one where I can be equally happy. It's just mm -hmm. you rein you rein in something, you you lose something, but you start exercising, engaging a completely different discipline with a four-piece kit. And I'm totally into it. I feel totally at home and totally complete with that. So... It's, it's really, that's another message to show the, the diversification between the small and the, and the big mm -hmm. and, and how you can kind of open, you know, what it, what it gives you in terms of expression, what's, what's there for you to use, you know? What happens when you go on the road? Do you, you think of like, what's the least amount of gear I could use or is it, let's go with the whole um, thing? It's funny, on the road is invariably backline these days. You know, mm -hmm. very rarely do I get in a situation anymore where I can actually travel my own gear, which is probably for the best. You know, in, in this day and age, we've, over here we have Brexit and all the stuff they, they put in, of course, making um, traveling into Europe extremely problematic and difficult. But um, so what I usually do was is is hark back to my really formative days, like with Alan Holdsworth, whereas it's pretty much just like a two up, two down in terms mm. of toms, one bass drum, double pedal. And there I've kind of got to cross between the small and the big, really. Um, and that, that invariably kind of works for me. Mm hmm. You, Unless um, it's a specialized thing. If, if I started doing drum clinics and, you know, appearing at some drum shows or something, I would get the full rig. Right. For sure. For sure. Are you rolling clear ambassadors on all your toms? Yes. Are you finding yeah. that you blow through those quickly? Or are they holding up? No. No. I mean, they're, they're, they're as hardy as they've they've always been. I, I think they, in actual fact, I like them when they're, when they're just kind of, you know, the other side of new, really. And they just played into an extent and, and I can get quite a lot of life out of them. Mm. You know, if I'm recording the, 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 I'll probably stick with them a good three days, you know, of, of constant abuse and pounding. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I really would. Um, I don't really do too much experimentation with heads at all. Um, and the odd time that I ha that I have done it, say for instance, go go back to trying um, 
you know, coated, which I use on a smaller kit, admittedly, but but going back to using uh, uh, CS black spot heads or something and, and seeing how that feels. Uh, one time I had the, 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 the combination of the, the bottom and the top CS, mm-hmm. um, uh, which was kind of largely under the influence of someone in particular at that time. But the, uh, physically, they give me something really scary, really not happening these days. I, mean, the, I tried them a few years ago and I just took them mm. straight off. I couldn't, oh, couldn't interesting. take it. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how we, we change and evolve, isn't it? Yeah, right. So what is your tuning strategy for the toms? Is it fairly tight? Yeah. Probably and, probably tighter than you imagine because I, I tend to get, especially now with this added end, uh, added one inch of the depth on, on the toms and stuff, the, um, there's, there's quite a fullness to them, but they're very poppy. So I, I can afford to, um, you know, my old standard approach of... of of finding a good um, top and bottom tension, and then taking the tom the 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 bottom head from there to the next point mm. that the drums seems to open out in tone. So I, I will I will just sort of crank it until I find another sweet spot, really. And what I mean, I guess what we all mean by that is just a, a sound that we like, and 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 in my case, it's it's one that sort of pops and it's very full, and it's um, it's got like a full range kind of quality to it and it's not kind of like fighting the other in any kind of audio way you know it's it's coming out like a kind of tubular sound or something you can you can come by those when you when you're up and down with the bottom head and but as soon as you you reach another one it's 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 kind of very cool so it gives the impression of um fullness and depth but they're actually pretty tight yeah wild now your snare drum sound is one of my favorites um Oh, thanks, Mike. <laughs> but it's something I can't I can't get a really high poppy snare sound like that without it being sounding like choked. So do you go how tight is it? I mean, is there any dampening on your drum? You said no, right? It's wide open. No. No, there isn't. Yeah, there's no ring happening. So what's the secret, man? <laughs> uh I play in the middle of the head, basically. Uh, okay. and, and of course and I've got like, you know, like so so many of us do, it, it's the it's the it's there are so many of my strokes that are actual rim shots at the same time as full hits. So I'm getting I'm getting like a crack, but 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 I think um, I feel more at home with a, a really open drum because I can be my own noise gate, if you like. I just mm. found a way to kind of in the way that I hit, and it uh, and I don't even like to watch myself do it. it it's it's um it's a funny thing with technique and how you 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 develop arriving or getting closer to a sound that you really like it, it's it's very often sort of um uh necessitates uh, a, a difference in 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 the way you hit and some people can feel oh well he looks like you know he I, you know, either purposely hits too hard or it's a very kind of awkward way. So, you know, certain people have picked up from time to time that it looks a very awkward way to play. But for me, it's the way to get the sound. And and just talking a sound, I so often feel that, you know, as, as arrives to me when if somebody sits down at my kit and, and says, you know, can I... And I go, please, sure, you know, and nothing like I like better than to stand back and hear the sound that he or she makes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like way amazed. It's like, 
that's my kit. You know, and, <laughs> and the answer to all that is the sound is in us. You know, I mean, it's right. for for me, it's in here, but it's also in here. It's it's part of the intent. It's it's that I've got to get that um, message through in that stroke or that phrase or whatever I'm doing, and and it's I think it's in the intent, and the intent seems to hone for me, uh, in my opinion, the way you kind of. Um, apply the six of the drum, attack the drum, call it mm -hmm. whatever, um, play the drum. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it seems to sort of arrive at a point that um, where I start to like it um, through um, you know, I mean, just just the way, and, and, and I just go back to this thing, I, I think because I play in the center, I, I seem to be able to get this kind of hit uh, and this impact, but without without producing like a multitude of overtones and, and ring. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I managed to do it. I mean, I, with this interesting point with sound engineers, for instance, that comes up time and time again. That um, we, you know, they they take a listen. They come up on stage, which I always invite them to do. Say, please, please listen to what's what's happening. Stand at fairly close range, and then stand back and 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 really get a sense of what I'm producing by the way I'm playing and, and the sound that I get, you know, and let's look at um, maybe angles and distances with microphones to, you know, to that end to try to, um, you know, I won't say duplicate, but, 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 but mic very sympathetically accordingly with the sound I'm making, not for them to come, you know, the, to, to, to really pursue their wish to have me with less ring. I say, let me just, you know, just just put them all up, keep them flat, and let's see what we've got. And, and very often, they can't believe it's the same kit. They said, have you done something? I said, no. Mm. They're all just singing like a baby up here, you know. And, um, and it's because I think of this um, trial by fire, this this endless experimentation with, with positioning, and... Um, to the point, um, I've I've grown so much, uh, f very very fond of this uh, ambient side. This this whole kind of Glyn Johns kind of concept gone crazy. Mm -hmm. um, plus, I'm using like 57s uh, for most of the top kit, which is kind of really ridiculous. You okay, know? I'm, I'm actually taking, <laughs> and and it makes and it makes this positioning thing so much more critical. But but anybody who sees those videos. We'll see that there's one mic taking care of the top three racks, for instance, but it's 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 at a position and a point where there's a totally equal thing and a height, of course, which makes the total sort of picture mm. and and how it's hearing. But yeah, fifty-seven and the same with the fourteen, uh, uh, fourteen and sixteen on the floor. Is and one other fifty-seven. Mm. That's unbelievable. Eh? So, yeah. like across six times, I've I've got two fifty-sevens. Fifty-sevens. Wow. So I mean, there we it go, is, folks. All you need are a pair of fifty-sevens, and you're it's, 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 it's a trip. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I take. I mean, we. You know, part of it's also what you have at your disposal. I mean, with 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 us, we had to work at a at, at a minimum a little bit because. Um, I just didn't have the resources to to pay for the kind of room I wanted to be in, and that and that means for a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. If you find a room that 
really gives the kit something and that the kit sort of lives in quite naturally and sounds pretty much coming across the way it is in all its glory, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to somewhere that's just overly dead or overly ambient. So just to be able to do that, we, 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 we went, you know, I've got a couple of, um, for the two bass drums, one each couple of D112s and one in the gong drum. And uh, that's it. That's the two bass drums, the gong drum, six toms um, with the 257s. And uh, we take my overheads from a little Zoom. It's actually the microphone on a little Zoom um, recorder no where we kidding. take our angle, overhead angle from. I actually use that for my overheads. And wow. it works, you know, uh, just as long as I don't keep my obvious things like talk, uh, talking mic, little Lavalier thing or whatever I'm going to use. As long as that's nowhere near anything and nowhere near on, um, we're, we're fine. It's, it seems to come out like a, a really great blend to the point people are saying, wow, what a drum sound, you know, how, how come is there something we're not seeing? I said, no, it's straight into an interface. And right at the beginning, we were recording to band camp, uh, it's not band camp, a uh, garage band. <laughs> no kidding. I can't believe it. You know, <laughs> it was this older version of uh, garage band though. They, they sounded a lot different. Mm. Uh, anyway, but it's, that's yeah, amazing. So that it is giant amazing. kit, you've got three bass drum mics, three fifty sevens, <laughs> one on the snare. Oh, I do have. Sorry, that's a that's an extra fifty seven. I have one, uh, pretty much just next to um, the snare, which catches, which is just positioned at a, a point where I get enough of the uh, hi hat that I want in there. I would love to make the hi hat too, but we just didn't have the resources or the stands or mm. anything. So um, that's amazing. We, we just started with the very very bare minimum, so it gives credence to this. You know, whatever works. Yeah, and and sometimes you can't really sort of reason it, you know, like to the to the point, you know, people just go no, and you go, yeah, <laughs> you know. Well, sorry. I mean, that's a testament to your touch. Now, do you find when you yeah. get on these backline kits that you don't have to spend a lot of time tweaking because your touch kind of knows what to do with what's presented? I mean, there's a certain amount of that. I feel yeah, that just comes into play. There's an automatic adjustment that. That I'll get on a on a very unfamiliar kit, um, and as long as I don't feel like I'm fighting the instrument and it fighting me, there's 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 usually a, a very very quick kind of solidification of of uh, me and it mm-hmm. sort of. I seem to be able to adjust to to whatever and deal with what's not there very quickly. Mm-hmm. What is your snare drum of choice? Actually, I've got an I've got an old '90s Pearl uh, free floating, mm. which I don't know what it is they do differently now, but they are different. And in some ways, they they've they've got something else. Um, but uh, this for some reason, this one from my old Maple one from the '90s, uh, it's just incredible. <laughs> it's just got everything. I could just get the snares exactly in a place where they're, they're, I mean, somewhat effortlessly. It, it just seems to balance out. It's a six and a half or six, no, six and a half inch. And it, and it really, really just speaks so clearly. 
you know, a lot to do is with this stuff is is what people have kind of um, missed in your playing. Like, you know, for me, starting out in big bands, for instance, and playing in in even even in sort of mid seventies when there were there were no kind of PA. I mean, there was there was no PA. Mm-hmm. The the there are no uh, monitors to speak of or anything at that point, except for the vocalists or the sol- a solo instrument out front. That was it. Um, we had nothing back there. And what invariably would, would be happening, because we play quite cavernous halls and things, or, you know, town halls, or, you know, pretty ambient theatres or something, would be um, the clarity problem. Uh, not just that, the dynamics problem as well, which I, I'll, I'll go into, but the, the clarity thing was was just about the hits being clear. I think you alluded to that right at the beginning when you were talking about the snare drum sound. But And, and you know, the complaint that came from, from me, uh, towards me from the, the, the band leader was, it's too indistinct. Um, th- there was... You know, when you play those kind of fills and you're setting up a big shout chorus, or you or you you're getting ready to to slam something home with you know like tutti with the with the brass, it has to be clear. You know, the band need it, I need it, the audience need it. Mm. And, I, and and when he said that, that triggered something. So I started running like a, what that what what was like a you know, like a, a little standalone uh, portable recorder. Okay, in my case, in the 70s, it was a cassette machine, Pro Walkman or whatever, with the microphone on board. And we'd just record the hall uh, right from where the PA guy would be sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he'd just record the room. So what we'd get, what we'd get is, is something completely unflattering. You know, you, you'd have, of course, the noise of the audience, but... When the band was playing, I heard a very, very accurate monitor of exactly what was going out front and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. I, I know they, there's a little condenser microphones choking everything. At the, uh, what were they? Automatic recording level in those days or something? Mm-hmm. Horrendous, where you get all this suck and then uh, like right. pull back. But even then, it gave me enough of an idea of, of what actually was getting through and what wasn't. And, and, and I realized that a lot of my weaker strokes, what, what people call more fashionably now is ghost notes and, and you know, like, you know, your little flams, your little sort of roughs and things that inherent to what you do. And those things that make often um, they complete the picture in, in what you're doing. Um, I, I realized that those were too quiet. And, and when, when it became for me to really slam something home, it was way, way over the top. Mm. So, so this, this was another thing to address with that. Not only the clarity, but the disparate and, um, and various levels of, of, of my playing in terms of velocity and volume that were there. And, and, um, there were certain things that I just couldn't hear. So I realized that, that I had to make a, a lot of modifications in playing in that big band to bring all my smaller stuff up to a level and to just cool it a little bit on when I really decided to go to it. I mean, which I'm prone to do, which which anybody is, when it gets exciting and you want to 
like something really wants to hit and you and you really go for it mm -hmm. and um it's, doesn't always work. <laughs> I mean, yes, the drums sound like they're really going for it, but I can't hear anything and it's not distinct and it's certainly not balanced. So internal balance, um, dynamic levels, and, uh, and also... Um, How did you get the clarity corrected? I think I probably just started to employ more... Um, singles generally um mm. which 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 stayed with me because you so often with a gig like that if you do it for a period of 18 months or something and and something you put, you start putting a certain method into play with 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 your your techniques and the way that you 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 do things it can it just kind of stays with you and a, and a lot of it's there from you know i can go back to recordings now with that band and think wow it's 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 almost identical to, to how it sounds now mm. <laughs> which isn't always a great thing you want to know but it, it is it is fantastic to to realize that there's a you know in another sense there's a strong connection between your very your beginnings and the stuff that you were learning earlier on and that you took care of earlier on and they stretch right through to today which is a great feeling you think well that's that's a tra trajectory <laughs> yeah it should be like that, you know. Were there um, were there those kind of shifts you had to make later in other projects, like with McLaughlin or Alan Holdsworth? Were there like major changes you had to make? To Very, no, surprisingly, no, no. So it's like self-compressing yourself seems to be was a big mm. lesson, right? That's something that I need to take into effect. Sort of, yeah. It's just like we were being our own, you know. With the, with the ring situation, we were learning how to be our own noise gate, as it were, and of course the self compression thing. Yeah. So what about um, what sticks do you yeah. use? I mean, that's something we don't talk about enough, but I think that also has a big part of the the touch and the clarity. Um, probably not as heavy as as some might. Uh, I don't even know if I have any around at the moment, but yeah, I'm using these Rebound Longs from Promark. Mm -hmm. they're at 16 inches they've got a really nice length for me that's that's absolutely about right for me uh and uh this these these just these 5a rebound long and these are the hickory version they do a maple version with a different tip that's slightly lighter similar feeling um but not as hardy mm -hmm. so i mean these these pretty much take care of everything for me with 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 the idea being that I can have the one stick to play in a quiet three piece and go f something really hard hitting, you know, about mm -hmm. as loud as and powerfully that I, as I'd want to play with these, with the mm -hmm. same stick. I, I mean, I love that idea of, yep. of being able to go from this velocity to big, you know, with the same stick. I, I never really got on with the idea of a stick bag full of different models for mm. some reason. It just didn't, uh, it felt funny to me to do that so i thought well there must be one that kind of like takes care of both some so you know this this has been my most recent find going going back to promark 6 which i always loved and uh yeah the 5a rebound long 16 inches and uh sort of a tip there that's you know pretty standard what do they call those acorn or whatever. yeah acorn right yeah and not a rounded uh tip and um 
sounds beautiful and sweet on cymbals. It's hardy here, mm-hmm. which which the the models I was playing before weren't. They I had a lot more sort of uh, lightness towards the front, which which was a light, which was a nice thing and hard to break away from, but. It, it actually gave a lot more ease to everything, which, funny enough, um, gave rise to another problem, and that I started overplaying again to try to get that power back. Uh. And, um, and I always know the feeling of overplaying, and, and I really do not like that in myself. I mean, there are countless recordings where I've done it, and mm. I, I swear I will never do that again, and particularly in studios, because it just... Of course, any of us who work in studios regularly, we know that um, microphones invariably prefer, a, um, you know, something a little more subtle than 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 you know brutish attack. So mm-hmm. um, I do bear that in mind too. But um, yeah, I mean that's just that's another thing. I mean all all these all these kind of things just never really go away and I'm kind of looking at them all the time and keeping them all in check and stuff and and you know just going back to the answer to to answering the your last question was you know very little changed transitioning to something like um Alan Holdsworth which was a very very um improvisational furious there was a lot of activity um uh, it was very inventive, but it was also quite powerful. He, he he wanted it powerful, and I was kind of always more that kind of player, particularly in his music, for whatever reason. That's what it brought out of me. So I needed the power, and and I needed that clarity as well. And and uh, and because of what I'd done beforehand, that we we were spe- speaking about, that 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 stuff really stayed with me. Amazing. Um, what do you look for in symbols? We talked about the drums, but what what do you need from the symbols? Uh, high end, <laughs> no, I, of course. Uh, it's the I don't know these whatever subtle level of transience come into play during the during a wash. I mean, I I I love distinction, good distinction, but not to the point that it's that it's it sounds like a, a pretty much a heavy metal ride symbol, or it's got a lot of tape all over it, mm-hmm. or something. Um, I really try to treat symbols with anything that sticks as as least as possible, and and let them be the symbol that they were designed to be. Um, same approach with drums, really, and and heads, you know, and and shells. If if something was built to resonate, then I want to get inside. That resonating degree, you know, the, the the resonating capabilities of the drum, and use it, try and use it as 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 the musician that I that I strive to be all the time, i.e., with variation, with with um, with dynamics, trying, you know, sometimes in, on different parts of the head, you know, whatever, just to just to make something feel and come across a certain way, musically. I mean, music, music really being the sole intent mm. barometer all the time. It, it was all really always about the music. So I always wanted to let the symbols really be what they were. Um, 
I never got into really kind of like grouping symbols up on the same thing or anything or getting into a kind of like trashy thing or the stack or I just, I just haven't done it. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I like the cleaner functionality of, of a good kind of relationship between all the crash symbols and, and ultimately the kind of relationship they all have with the ride. And if, mm -hmm. and if that's happening, I'm, I'm usually very happy, you know. I guess taste and instinct tells you what works better than other things for you or for the music at hand or whatever. And with the with the new 602, uh, because I'm I'm actually sort of like a fresh a freshman in in the ranks of uh, Paisley at the moment. Still, mm -hmm. I'm still trying things. Um, there's a there's a version of the 602 hi hats, the, the modified ones that Vinnie Colliuta had a lot to do with um, mm -hmm. having produced, um, and they do a version simply called Heavy, and they're wonderful for mm. me. I can I can even play those in a something pretty sensitive and, and quiet. So it goes, you know, it's it's, it's funny this whole thing of uh, you know this label of this function that that arrives on a symbol. Crash, right. <laughs> ride, but why can't we? And and you know, like everybody does, we're getting different effects out of symbols, you know, all the time, depending on how we're we're playing them uh, in the area that we're playing them on, you know, and how they're interacting with the other things, and indeed, in accordance with the the internal balance of the kit as well. That's another thing. But um, as far as like what kind of symbols, it it. I just love a, there's there's a particularly sonic nice sonic when uh, it's hard it's so hard to put into words, isn't it? Your, mm. your, your what kind of uh, what your expression entails, but but I like crash symbols that have got a little bit of an edge with each other, but at the end of the day they're kind of welcoming of each other. <laughs> So they they sound like a sort of group of grumpy brothers or something, you know. They, <laughs> Sounds like my they, family. <laughs> well, there you go, you know. I mean, and it's got you know, and there's a tension. There's a tension there, and I I kind of dig that tension. And uh, so that it's 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 not enough so that it's sweet. It's never sweet. There's always just an underlying tension to them. Uh, and the way they're, they're sounding together or as a group. And uh, and uh, I invariably will try to go, which is not very easy with Paiste because they pride themselves on being able to replicate pretty closely, you know, uh, a 16-inch Formula 602 crash cymbal. So you can go into any shop and buy it and it will sound identical. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I, never, I never experienced that ever. You know, there was always a, a fundamental, some kind of pretty fundamental difference between these so-called same models, you know. And, um, you know, particularly with hi-hats, man, I'd go and get like a, you know, back in my Zildjian days, I'd, you know, go and try and get myself another pair of 14-inch um, K... Uh, New beats in the day, or or whatever they've been. What what was it? Quick, the quick beats. Quick beats, yeah, yeah. Um, which which were pretty good and versatile, and they would sound so damn different. It would drive me nuts. <laughs> but at the same time, that's that's lovely because you find a different. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and um, 
you can kind of get used to it or you don't and it doesn't work. So you have to replace them. Yeah. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Uh, let's talk about the new record. Um, oh, thanks, man. Thanks how, for listening. Yo, I've been, I've been through it a few That's times, and and this morning I when I got to the end of it, I immediately heard a bass line. I had to come down to the kit, and I had to improvise over this bass line in my head. So oh, great. thank you oh, for the man. inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, thank you, Mike. But, but yeah, it really, it really is Bass City, isn't it? That, that yes, record. yes. So cool. So how was this recorded? Was it all done remotely, or were you in sessions with other musicians? Yeah. No, it's the it's the COVID style, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, how was it presented? Was it? Would you get demo? I mean, the, this type of music, I have a hard time comprehending the conception of it. You know, like what was the first idea? Rock. <laughs> <laughs> it is seriously. It's actually the first of my own recordings. I've had a good few recordings now to my name which has been great, but this is the first one actually that's come out as a rock record. So I'm actually really <laughs> pleased about that. And, uh, and it doesn't arrive on everybody's jazz desk. You mm -hmm. know, the, the, this was uh, another one. Why, you know, why, why am I always bracketed there? And, you know, that's all, that's a whole other thing, but um, yeah, it's quite, when it comes out on spot, you know, Spotify and the streaming things uh, a little later this month, it will, um, it will be under rock. Nice. <laughs> nice. So what, was, sorry, the, what was the first written piece of music for it? What was it? What were you presented with or did you write it? What was it? Uh, no, actually, it was the, the first piece that, um, I mean, the, 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 make a long story short, it was a dream of mine to try to fill the void of coping with the loss of Alan, really, Alan Holdsworth. Mm -hmm. And and more, even more fundamentally, the the kind of rapport that we had over for those decades, you know, the 37 years mm -hmm. playing with somebody you, you find, um, and it, and it be continually like we, we'd still be evolving and, and changing and whatever else, but we'd get together and it would still work. You know, it was uncanny, um, an uncannily effortless in a mm -hmm. way. So, I mean, that, that's not an easy relationship to lose. Um, so I had to find something and I wanted to really look for a musician who was, uh, you know, I mean, I, I know there's a big accent on, on chops and the way people play, uh, you know, tone, chops, hands, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in music for the musicians for the dimension and, and what is going on in, inside of the imagination of that guy. And, and can that possibly work? And and with Alf Terry Hanna, who co-leads this thing with me, I find I found such a different difference in a guitar voice. I think that that I've ever experienced in a guitarist. So I've never heard anybody like him. 
really. So um, uh, we, I, I sort of made up my mind. You know, I'm the sort of guy that likes to make things difficult for myself, you know. <laughs> and and unlike Alan or John McLaughlin, um, there's not a there's not a great deal of apart from some, you know, in more obvious and apparent rock ways, there's, there's not a lot of kind of like rhythmic stuff going on between the drums and the, gu and the guitar. Mm -hmm. So I made my mind up, I need some serious heavyweight sort of bass end uh, people to be involved that, that I can really bounce off rhythmically. But even, if, even when that, that isn't there, it demanded something of me that I don't know. It demanded something of that, that, as a player, I don't know how to interact with something that isn't falling on sort of a rhythmic grid, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, it's, with him, it's very much of a textural thing and timing. When something happens, when it doesn't happen, when it stops happening, when it starts happening again, you know. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's all of this that really constitutes his dimension as a musician. But it isn't really in that way interactive with drums. So... The challenge was to find a way to play, obviously, drums and be a rhythm agent as a drummer, but to be a rhythm uh, musician um, in the way that I was forced to engage my imagination into ways of playing that didn't demand that of him or was reliant on him to be functional in ways that he just isn't. You know, mm -hmm. he's different. This guy's different. It's really, really different, as you mm -hmm. as you as you hear from the, the album. So, um, first of all, it demanded a lot. So I thought I've got to get a band with this guy. I need this hardship every day of my life, <laughs> <laughs> like, like a hole in the head. Yeah, I know. But there's some of us are crazy like that. But <laughs> but uh, so the plan was, and because we never really got into finding a bass player, I had. I had my ideas and, and definite choices about some guys, but they were either not available or in some ways not obviously um, for a lot of the range of the album. As, you, as you've played the album, you kind of get a sense of how it crosses a lot of um, areas, really. It covers a lot of ground, and it's not without its humor, it's dramatic, it's funny, it's kooky, it's like sort of vaudeville, or, or it's, mm. you know, it's weird. Uh, but but I love that and welcome it because it's 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 a new phase in, in my musical life and, and his too. So we're both finding a way that have, in ways that are very much untypical of us previously. So that being said, uh, what was the question again? <laughs> I just want to know what was oh, the, the first, first piece of written music? What? How did it get going? Uh, it got going because um, I, as usual, put all this into play. I said, yeah, we're definitely going to do it, and then didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, but that's not always, it just, you know, I tend to think that everything shows us something. So why didn't I get onto that immediately? Why did I procrastinate? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, now I see it. Uh, there were things on my mind about it. You know, I, had, I still had some work to do processing it. Anyway, um, Alf, on the other hand, got into writing some serious, a serious wealth of, of material with us in mind. And one of the first things he sent me was in what has turned out to be the first track on the album, Two Foxes. Mm -hmm. uh, which at that time was called Tracker 10. 
they were all kind of like track uh, everything up to 70 ideas that he wrote. Oh, wow. Okay. And I thought, man, you know, this, he's serious. <laughs> so I better get, I better get myself in gear, you know, and uh, I, I went back to analyze them. And the plan was that I would just choose a good spread section of the things that I thought would really work as a sort of playlist, if you like, of, of material, um, but with a, enough stylistic diversity and, and, and maintenance of interest for people, hopefully, um, that would make it a nice listen from beginning to end, you know, being mm -hmm. the old fashioned album type, you mm -hmm. know, um, I love the journey thing. And, um, and, and I think we, we kind of really reached it, but yeah, the first track came across with this slushy hi-hat beat you hear and this, and this pretty much down the middle backbeat oh, pretty much all through, um, <clears throat> was actually a copy of me. Uh, it was it was me copying a sample he took from a record that I made in the 90s with somebody. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, and he grabbed the drums off it somehow um, and just took the drum and used that as his demo. And I was like, I know that beat. That's you amazing. Know, easy. <laughs> yeah, it was on Gongzilla, uh, an album called Thrive. And uh, I took it off there and I thought, no kidding. So how bizarre was it that I'm impersonating myself like 30 years ago or something? <laughs> Out there. That's amazing. So then... Uh, it works, yeah. How does the, the, the composition progress from there? Since you're having to do this remotely back and forth, would you layer some stuff and then he would add part? I mean, how did it end up finished? I, I pretty much let him... You know, because, of course, we've all had this COVID experience now for a few years. And I, and I think quite a lot of people, it's not definitely not unique to a, a certain few. We, we've all become out of necessity, being the mother of invention. <laughs> Thank you, Frank Zappa, whoever said that. Um, we, we have to find a way to um, start making music together. Mm -hmm. Um and one of the first ways of successfully doing that, I think, was this John McLaughlin record, Liberation Time, which, which also was done completely intern um, internal, independently. Mm -hmm. So everybody recording from home or from a studio to a finished demo. Um, at that point, it would have to be called a demo because usually when the drummer had recorded everything, everybody wanted to do their part again. Right. Which, if you think, actually kind of makes sense, you know. Yeah. To, um, and you think, oh, God, okay. You know, and especially, of course, if you play a melody instrument, like I'm playing keyboards with John primarily, um, if I get to know what the guitar solo is about and then I hear that he's changed it, um, because of a new, the new arrival of a drum pass by Ranjit, who's in Bombay, right? You know, uh, or Mumbai, rather. And um, I got what well, I, I got to play another solo as well. <laughs> yeah, so then you just keep going in circles, though. Well, well, we do, but but <laughs> it, somebody has to be, you know. It's like enough. <laughs> that's it. You know, <laughs> it's actually a very good solo now. So leave it. You know, and and uh, and learn you know cultivate this thing enough now it's it's it is actually done it, it's pretty good that way and there's nothing wrong with it mm -hmm. um so as long as we can get over that and, and become happy with it which surprisingly 
I, you know, I mean, the much surprise to me, I never thought we could really ever cope with that kind of situation. But experience has got a lot to do with it. And I think the this experience that we, if we really set out to be as players, play with anybody you can all the time, um, just to have the experience of having it, having done so and continually doing so, mm. just gives you so much as a player. And and I believe that it it serves you with something that stays with you all your life, you know. And 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 once that starts working to your advantage, you begin to form a good a good uh, conviction and confidence in yourself about it. You think, yeah, I can. This is feasible to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and on the liberation time with John, there was a different drummer on every track, mm-hmm. almost. Um, Vinnie Colliuta played the first track, and. He, you know, because of the very, very considered uh, approach by John to, to handpick uh, certain guys for certain pieces. Of course, with Vinny, it was super interesting all the time, you know, and uh, really great dynamic and, and sort of flamboyant ideas inside of the music and stuff that were really working. But you can tell all the time the musician he is making those decisions for him they're 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 the ultimate arbiter really uh, it's it's him as a musician speaking at all times it doesn't matter how flamboyant or impressive he's being it's him as a musician and and that's what shines through and i think that's really what saves uh as all you know the 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 capacity and the need to make music to be your commitment to music but also your experience and and all those years of playing together uh, say for the fourth dimension, which is our the band there you see on the wall, um, Ranjit who plays drums. I know what sets him off, mm-hmm. and I know about what point invariably he'll start to sort of like heat things up, you know. Oh, okay. So, some some guys I I would expect to probably have that going on a lot sooner. Maybe some not at all, or at least much later. So I mean, this gives you a first idea of how somebody plays and and what kind of a choice to make or and to an- anticipate ah Vinny's going to play on this track right well i'm just going to have to sort of play uh, all out and i know that if it's going to be enticing to him if it's going to be interesting to him and in such they will engage his musicality to start interacting with me as he absolutely will uh, mm-hmm. that's the kind of player he is given the freedom and uh, the right area of music He's just going to go, uh, he's going to be phenomenal on it. And he was, <laughs> and he is every time. So it's, uh, that was a real confidence booster to, ha- to have made that album. So by the time we got to making this one, it was, it was sort of, yeah, it's going to be okay. You know, mm. it's really going to be okay. And once I'd done the drums, and there was no big affair with that either. It was like two days for the whole of the record. Uh, I managed to get about six tracks done in two days. And these two days were a month apart mm-hmm. with slight differences of gear. Uh, and um, and it, uh, it really, yes, I would say that once I'd done the drum things, we, we did record bass after that, which, which gives the bass player a good foundation mm-hmm. to, work, to work on. Um, knowing that there's a finished drum pass there. So that's his kind of confidence booster. Um, but Alf certainly replaced 
you know, not a great deal of things, I would say. It's just that we we deleted bits of programming here and there. Some of it's like rhythmic programming um, just so that it didn't... I mean, I'd, I'd recorded all my tracks to, to the tracks when they had programming in them. So I knew that I was there was a, a, a line of concentration all the time with keeping super in with those as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there were very little differences done, I'm, I must say. And uh, all the bass players, they, they played as, as exactly as you hear them. It's amazing. Um, it, sounds, it sounds like spontaneous creation, even though it's obviously impossible to do that. It's great. Of course, we can't get with that, having made it. <laughs> you know, but, but, but it's just been the most unbelievable pleasure to hear comments about it now, that um, you know, where people really think, oh, where did you guys record that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> home. <laughs> in, in a lot of cases, home, yeah. I mean, most of the bases were at home. Um, the drums, I have to go to a studio. There's no, there's, we're in between houses right now, and I have no studio here. Yeah. So I I got it. That's that's a given. Um but Alf of course did all his guitars at home. So Amazing. do you do you have any thoughts or concepts for cuz when I think of your playing it's powerful, it's distinct, but there's always a sense of like surprise to where I think maybe you even surprise yourself sometimes with what what comes out. Like how do you cultivate yeah. that to have that sort of openness and freedom to like oh that i want to go that way i don't know what's going to happen when i go that way but that's where i'm going to go you practice it is it what, what's the the mindset no, I, I, the mindset is is first of all really to 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 look at what i want to achieve out of a drum pass um if it's a drum pass for somebody else i want to look closely at what's being asked of me mm. uh and uh and I'd like to have always a very good idea about those people that I work for, what their tastes are, the guys they've worked with before, what they invariably, invariably gravitate towards, you know, when they're trying to get something from a drummer. Um, and just sort of do my homework in that respect so that I'll have a pretty good idea of what they might like for something. You, you find very often when people give you a demo of, of something they've programmed up or had somebody program up, it's like they will say, please don't listen to the drums or let that influence you. You think, well, yeah, but you must have done that for a reason, you mm-hmm. know, or somebody must have done that for a reason and kept it as it is for a reason. Is there something you like about it? You know, which invariably the answer would be coming back, no. You know, uh, I, I want I want to hear what you do, which is the great answer. You know, yeah, if you're yeah. given if you're given that freedom and liberty, so much the better, and you can really, um, you know, strike up a nice rapport, and and for them to know that you're committed to getting the track right. But in terms of um, working on our own and finding this, this was very much a chance thing. We were discovering it as we went along, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alf and I have never played. Well, we did once, but we really haven't properly played live together ever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what it actually feels like so to to be sort of interactive with him on stage. So it's it's it, all all I have is is a pair of headphones, and 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 I'm and the information I'm given, what I choose to delete, what I choose to. Well, that's another thing. I, I will probably take quite a lot of. I won't say superfluous things, but things that I don't consider necessary for me doing a drum take out mm. of my mix. 
Uh, I'd rather get the central nitty gritty of, of what really is crucial about the track and and the form of it. And of course, keep all the the stuff in that's representing the mood or the, the intensity of it and or the flow of it. But other than that, I'll probably kind of simplify my mix just to try to get the drums uh, feeling good and constant um, and correct, really, for, mm. for more traditional song forms. Verse, bridge, chorus, things, whatever, middle eight, <laughs> uh, intros, outros, re-intros, mm-hmm. um, all of that kind of stuff. And, um, and just try and get all that together. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, do you start like your first time through? Is it just throw everything at it and see what sticks? Or do you come from the very get-go with some ideas that you want to explore? Well, I, I have to say, I can never really say enough that, that there's so much sort of internalizing going on between me and that track mm. first. Um, you know, the, in an ideal world, I will know that track from having had some some days at least experience of it. And I'll, and I'll be really into that track you know I'll, I'll go out with a pair of headphones and just walk and and just feel you know have this trick track trick track <laughs> become a part of me though as i just know it's routine so that obviously i'm learning the track as well but but i'm getting a sense of i'm trying to engage my imagination into what what might possibly work and i'll and i'll probably come up with a kind of short list of little audible audio uh things that i can play in my head or that i've sung into a phone or something mm-hmm. that, that might kind of like do this track some favors you know it might be an interesting thing to try and i'll just uh make a good list of those and take them into the studio with me sometimes ignore all of them mm-hmm. and just go for something completely fresh and that can work too so i mean i don't, I don't think there's any sort of actual sort of stipulated winning formula mm-hmm. with that. I, I think you, ch- you either, you can chance upon it and get something, man, you know, this actually works out really good, mm-hmm. you know, or actually put something down and send a little sample of it to the artists or your partner or your colleagues and say, is this working for you? And say, God, yeah, you know, you know, and, or, or hmm. <laughs> you know, the moment <laughs> yeah. the moment hmm's come in, it's a little. It's might be time to worry a little bit, but you know, <laughs> yes. When you um, when you play a solo, do you are do you concern yourself with with the strictness of like form or tempo or time signature? You know, or you know, is it just kind of go wherever it goes? It goes wherever it goes, really, and I think the the. This largely, largely down to the guys I kind of grew up listening to, and they took a lot of artistic liberties mm-hmm. in music. Invariably, I mean, even you know, I'm, I'm not even talking super technical players. Keith Moon, <laughs> who who took bigger liberties than him? I mean, he's he's flying by the seat of his pants, and he's, I mean, it's just wonderful, and the sense of joy and exhilaration that he had in, in, in doing that was just something that stayed with me for, as an example, you know, and there were, you know, various, a lot of more jazzier players, very much more inventive players whose spirit um, 
I would comf- you know compare versions they do of one tune and some another version they do of exactly the same tune, exactly the same arrangement, way completely different approach. Mm-hmm. And you think, wow, you know, this is like a free spirit there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all of it works. So if I was just inspired by those people to to be inventive, to 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 engage imagination, to to engage some kind of um, relationship with the, with the music that it actually starts su- suggesting to you things to you and it, they start popping into your head and as i say you know <clears throat> if you do things like take a walk produces a kind of little bit of the endorphins start working you know you start getting ideas mm-hmm. you know there's a there's something in the momentum of actually physically moving repeatedly on an ongoing thing that for me actually does me a lot of favors and and, and i can start to hear things Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, just going invariably, I'll just sort of take a short list of those in and try them, or just go for something way off. I must say that I'll probably go in first and try something that I had not, or fall upon something at the drums, you know, because you're 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 now at the drums probably for the first time with the track, you know. Mm-hmm. At least I usually am, and um, and I'll go with something that's yeah, that's. That I think is working. Um, if I do something, go and take a listen to it, uh, make a couple of modifications and stuff. But this can work as a basis for an idea and, a, and an approach. So I'm pretty much like that, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, being multi instrumentalist, I think of like, is it like being multilingual? Do you sometimes hear music in a keyboard perspective, and sometimes hear music from a drummer's perspective, or, or is it all one thing? It's all one. Really? So, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know the difference. I think, I think there, there were various other music, sort of multi-instrumentalists. In actual fact, I just play two instruments. Um, uh, and they're really, the way I look at them is if there's a hole and a line down the middle, this is the drums, that's the harmony and the, 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 the melody, the melodic stuff right here. And they are a whole mm-hmm. because because of each other really they they because of how young i was playing classical piano for instance uh i was also young starting out as a drummer shortly after piano but the classical thing influenced me no end when i started learning about classical phrasing and and rubato and and uh, pushes in time for a musical effect and and all these kind of um, methods to employ in in incorrectly and authentically interpreting Western classical music were really coming into play and affecting the drum side, you know, which is, mm. you think, well, how does that work? But it does, and it and it would really. And I'd see cor- correlations, you know, down the line. Um, later on, I'd start going to see people like Elvin Jones, the the great jazz drummer, and 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 this kind of um, relentless. Uh, I won't say it's out of time because there was a there was a kind of a meter involved, but he'd just be implying it. But it's very very abstract. Mm-hmm. Mike, <laughs> you know, and mm. I'm going. I'm not supposed to be moving to this, but I am, and I don't know why that is. You know, it was just a kind of propulsion in him 
uh, and sit and being lucky enough to sit pretty close range to uh, to watch his performances was uh, a real big powerful impact on me and it stayed with me uh, to the point that a, a lot of that sort of way of approaching the outside a little bit more this abstract and this breathing thing that came from the classical interpretations really started to affect what I do as a soloist on drums mm. um, without thinking. I never thought about it. It was just there. And, and because I'd enjoyed it, I just, you know, like your body goes into healing mode when you have an operation, it starts, it goes to work and starts fixing things. If it knows something that, that I've been turned on as a musical effect, it starts employing that in there mm -hmm. somehow. And it, you wake up in the morning and you're feeling all these kind of ideas. It's like, how the hell did I arrive at that? You know, and, <laughs> and I kind of, oh, wait a minute. You know, I know where this is all a bleed from. You know, this is, I know where this has got its roots. And, and it's an amazing process if you let it happen. Mm -hmm. if, if you allow yourself to be open and creative and, and let your imagination run wild, allow it. Let it allow yourself to engage it and bring it in because some of the most wackiest things have made the most straight ahead records in the world. I mean, you only had to look at, you know, how blame with the Beach Boys or something, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, he, he, you get sort of like a, a Zen like instruction from um, what's the brother? Anyway, uh, the mastermind really of, of the band. And, oh, Brian Wilson, yeah, <laughs> to hear the kind of stuff he gives an, uh, of a, as an instruction. And you think, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you really don't know what he's getting at. But you try enough things and you eventually discover what he's getting at. And uh, in a sense, it can guide you to go a little bit closer and achieve more successfully what he's getting at. And, uh, and this is a great, fulfilling feeling, where, you know, once you can employ that but it, it they were pretty off the wall ideas mm. i mean some of the things that he was actually playing i mean ringo too i mean if you want to look at it who would think of those things <laughs> right. they're imaginative but they're born of some kind of thing that with his imagination open thought oh yeah if i put that beat there <laughs> and it's sort of like it's like the one should be where the three is and it's like, but it works, mm -hmm. and you don't know when you don't know why something works. You just know that it does, and so do they. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Is there yeah. any plans to take this new project to a live situation? Yeah, we'd we'd, we'd really love to, but I think we'd have to get a keyboard player mm. to to keep it authentic, which I really want to do. I'd, I'd like to take that exact music, not you know identical to the to the versions that we've got there have some kind of openness to it, some allowances for changes and some creative, you know, extra creativity. Um, but more or less to stick pretty much to that stuff and, and and do it live would be really, really exciting for us to do. So we, we do plan to try and do that, yeah. It's Sweet. a kind of hard time in the world to be uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> doing these things. But, hey, it's, it's like the the bloodline of my existence as it is for everybody all of us i mean we all love it 
we can't do without it. Mm-hmm. We're completely addicted to it. We can't stop doing it. So we better find a way. And, yeah. um, you know. Well, I always end, well, not always, but I try to end these conversations with the same question. And mm. being that you're in the UK, I'm curious the answer. What was your first snare drum? Oh. Well, it was actually in real terrible shape, but it was my father's old army, probably Germany-made World War II snare drum. No kidding. And it was completely rusted. I mean, I, the nights I spent as a... 10 year old on the floor with this thing with duraglit. I don't know if they have duraglit in the States, but it no. was kind of like a great sort of brass cleaner or, uh, you know, bronze or, you know, any, any of those kind of darker metals. And, um, and it smelt foul and it was foul really. <laughs> you don't want to know what they used to make it, but it was this kind of like a wire wall in a way, you know, it's like amazing that it was scratch, scratched the hilt, but it was somehow soft enough that it didn't. It was just enough of the abrasive, the abrasive thing was just enough and not too much. So I, I, I eventually, I, you know, every, I had that thing in bits many times, mm-hmm. just trying to get it like brand spanking new again. Um, but I, I couldn't get any sound out of it. It oh, was no. just terrible. So yeah, no, it was pretty <laughs> terrible. But the first proper snare drum I had was a West German Trixen. Um, and that was actually a kit, not without hits weirdnesses either. Um, well, well worn out, well used. But to me, it was a kit. It was my first kit, mm-hmm. really, real kit. But I still didn't have a hi-hat till about four years after that. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? So I was like pipe dreaming about a hi-hat. I mean, <laughs> For four <I'd>, years. <laughs> I, I was so young. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know what money was, except yeah, to go yeah. and buy some sweets or candy or something. <laughs> and it's like saving up. I mean, God, I'll be here for decades. You know? Right. I want a hi-hat. And of course, one birthday, there's your hi-hat. And it was mm. like, oh, my God. <laughs> And it was there, and it suddenly became a reality. And I was actually sort of employing this in the kit. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, that magical <laughs> moment. I had the same thing. First two years with no hi-hat, and then finally a birthday showed up. There was a hi-hat. There you go. <laughs> exact there same you go. thing. And it's really special like that. I remember the year, everything. I remember the day. Do you remember yeah, the first song you played on it? I remember the first song I played on it. It was Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2. <laughs> oh, was it? Oh man, fantastic, man! That's great. I don't, I don't remember the first song. No. So, how long did you have uh, that kit before you got your next kit? Um. Yeah, there were a couple of different levels there. I, I went up in quality again. My dad got me a because I started doing session work pretty young. Mm. Uh, he said you need, um, you need a good kit. <laughs> I said, okay, you know, thinking, yeah, <laughs> you know, but yeah, so, okay, you know, if you must buy me one. And I think he, he had an insider, a, a good rapport with a, a friend of his inside Premier Drums, and they, they, I think they gave him it for, you know, trade price or something, I don't know, whatever. But there was a big concession on it. So I got this beautiful Aquamarine Premier kit which I actually never liked. Mm. <laughs> um, I just never really got on with those drums. But but the first real kit that I loved was a Pearl. 
Mm-hmm. So I was I was on Pearl like in 1976 playing with that big band. You see the Pearl sign there. That, oh, yeah. that was the 1976 wood fiberglass white kit that I had. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a beauty. Those it was nice. uh, it was just it was yeah. And for the big band, it was great. Where he wanted impact and he wanted it red hot. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wanted drums. So uh, I said, "You got drums." <laughs> <laughs> so they were they were great. Yeah. So I'm no looking back from there. Really, you know, in terms of first kits, that that was the one that where I'd kind of arrived. You know. Do you still have it, or is it gone? No, many moons ago. Well, yeah. in those days, it 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 served to kind of it kept the companies a lot happier if you just give them back. You know, mm. I don't know what they're going to do with them, but it's a nice gesture. You know, wrong gesture is to go out and sell them, folks. As I have learned, <laughs> it's not a good idea. Very good idea not to sell your kits. At least if you do, incognito is the key, I think. But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I'd give them back because there was something very definite that I wanted to move on to uh-huh. that, that that really wasn't working on all levels. So there'd, there'd be a good reason to get a new kit each time. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of moved them on regrettably because mm. some of those were beauties. Man, wonder who has the Gary Husband wood fiberglass kit. We got to find it. <laughs> it's I don't know. Be there are a somewhere. few. I mean, there was a great, there was a Gretsch with the first album I did with Alan Holdsworth. When the, that was, uh, what finish was that? Uh, I don't know. Kind of a ready brown. Mm. Can't, can't think of what it was. And uh, it was absolutely beautiful, that kid. And it had such a character. Somewhere. Somebody's and got him. <laughs> and, that, and that I had to get to a shop. Uh, of um, course. And I, I had a relationship, and I just wasn't working, and uh, I had to sell it. Eesh. And I was uh, <laughs> there wasn't there was not a nice thing to see that kit in the window. And can you believe it? It, it went in like almost twenty four hours. I bet if I would have seen that walking by, I would pop the credit card out right away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, it's somewhere, you know, chances are it is somewhere and still sounding great for somebody. Um, I hope they're enjoying it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for the chat. This was great. Um, Again, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Mike. Is there a website where we could we should recommend the record, or it's on all streaming services, right? Um, well, it will be on all streaming. So, so, you know, for those who do it, those who prefer this, the a real thing Mm -hmm. to put on. Um, because I'm just traveling all the time. I'm so MP3'd out mm-hmm. that I just want to hear a real experience again. So sadly, we don't have a vinyl version of Vaudeville 845, this record. Um, but uh, at least there's a CD, and it sounds pretty good. Yeah, we took, we did spend some good money on that. The, mm-hmm. the recording and the, and, the, and the mixing and the mastering for sure so so it's good stuff uh but anyway the record company is abstract logics right dot com um and the place to buy it right now or or obtain it um is abstract logics website there we go go pick it up and there's a link to it from my website which is extremely simple if you can't spell abstract logics, it's GaryHusband.com. I'm <laughs> sure you'll manage. <laughs> no problem. 
Hope you enjoyed that chat with Gary Husband. Make sure you go over to GaryHusband.com and check out his video casts. Again, that's some really incredible educational content there. Check out his new record by his band Trackers, Vaudeville 845, and definitely dig through his vast discography and uh, especially the work he did with Alan Holdsworth. But there's a lot to check out there. So GaryHusband.com. Now it is time for our shop talk segment. This week we are over at Hawthorne Drum Shop checking out uh, a really o- often overlooked vintage kit. This is a 1970s premiere kit. This is called the Powerhouse Outfit. I had a lot of fun demoing this kit. And so let's check it out. Premiere Drums with Chris Hawthorne. Premiere Drums. I have a sweet spot for Premiere Drums. My first professional kit was a set of Signias I got in 1997. I still have them. I keep thinking about selling them and I won't. But this is not a Signia kit, and this is not from 1997. What are we looking at here today? Well, first, Mike, how are you doing today? <laughs> Got it? That's your mic. Yeah, position. I'd like to start off apologize for my bad mic technique, apparently. <laughs> um, so this is a premiere kit. It's from the 70s. Um, I don't I haven't looked up the model name, so I don't know the model name. Frankly, I don't even know what they called their black wrap. I should, but I don't. It's black. Black, yeah, we call it a black drum kit. Um <laughs> Yeah, and I thought it would be good to kind of talk about this is as we're kind of going through some of the history of drums, like this isn't anything crazy or, you know, unique. They're just good drums. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, they're made overseas in England. Um, and these four drums here, the rack tom, the two rack toms, floor tom, and the bass drum are all uh, African mahogany. So Sound unbelievable. I did a demo before here that you can check out. Um, it's unbelievable. Fat. Didn't have to touch a tuning rod on a 40-year-old drum kit. Well, that's one of the things that I think is really good about Premiere is I think a lot of people who come are like new to vintage drums. Their biggest concern is like the hardware. It's so old. But Premiere is really known for good chrome. Mm-hmm. Um, all their hardware is super solid. They probably have the best telescoping spurs. You probably can't see them if there's a button there. I love that. I had no idea that was a feature. So you just push it. It has a spring in it, I yep. assume, and it just releases it easiest old spur I've ever messed with. Yeah. Everything, it all, it's all super solid. It works really well. It cleans up really easily. And they're really, like, really well made. Probably, I'd say overall, if you're talking, like, general for a company, just better than, I think, most American companies, if I'm being honest. But they're not as desirable because they're not American, which is kind of the catch-22. Which is weird. Which yeah, it is, is weird. weird. I don't understand why. I mean, we were talking before that... Ringo Starr, who essentially created the American drum market <laughs> after Gene Gruba, he started out on, on Premier Drums. And it's funny that it, it didn't carry the same cachet. What makes you wonder, like, he played the, it was Mahogany Duroplastic. And it kind of is like a root beer strata, really cool looking kit. That was his color. And then he came to America and he played the Ed Sullivan Show and he played the Oyster Black Pearl. But it makes you wonder, like, if he didn't do that, what it would have done. Not to go down the Ludwig rabbit hole, but up before, I think it was 1963 or 64, where he played Ed Sullivan. It was like Slingerland was like the company. So, so many Slingerland kits will come through before then, but anything that's like a pre-serial Ludwig kit is, is a little less common. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really, I mean, I love, I see that every podcast, I love these drums. <laughs> and you can buy them today. No. <laughs> well, let's talk about some things that kind of surprised me. These are massive wing nuts that I didn't expect um, but they still work great 
a double wing nut on the tom mount. I've never seen that. It's like grabbing it from both sides. Well, two's better than one, Mike. And it's got an elliptical, is that the right word? Elliptical shaped, an oval mount instead of a round mount. Um, they, they my geometry it. teacher is very mad because I don't know what shape that is. <laughs> is it a rhombus? It's not an oval. I don't know what it is. It's not round. It's a flattened circle, whatever that equals. But no, It's kind of nice because like all the Ludwig ones were circle. Yeah, and they just constantly spin. This yeah. isn't going anywhere at all. Um, serial numbers, were they good about maintaining that? I don't think so. Maybe. I mean, like I said, I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to serial numbers. Maybe I should. It says 7478. Would that be 74 is the year, possibly? Who knows? Well, this one says 4292. Okay, so it's not from 4991. And I got all these all these drums together. So there is a chance that maybe they repeat, but I don't think that they, they don't look like they were. And I'm pretty sure the 13, 14, 16 configuration was... Um, I actually had a gold spark, a gold silk. I can't remember what it was called. Polychromatic gold. That's what it was. Same configuration um, a couple months ago, but it was beat to heck. Mm. But it still sounded great. Yeah, so. mahogany shells. Didn't expect that. Is, was anyone else at the time doing all mahogany? I mean, Ludwig did mahogany, not as much in the 70s. That's a good question. I don't know if there was. I think of it being like a 1950s makeup with WFL and... And through the 60s. But it's, it's African mahogany. Yeah, it's the good stuff. This is Apparently the good Apparently African stuff. mahogany is better than non-African. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable how affordable these are. Um, considering if you got a new kit made with African mahogany in this setup, several thousand dollars. Three ply, I mean, they're three-ply drums, so they're thin. They have reinforcement rings, which is, if you're not familiar with those, those are, you know, help drums to resonate, and they keep them warmer, I guess, keep the shells in round. So... We talk, you know, me and you sometimes about like modern drums, like a Ludwig Legacy kit, which has those reinforcement rings in the thinner shells is like, what, 3,200 bucks? Several thousand. You know, you go back 20, 40, 50 years in time and you can get a kit with you know, for uh, literally a fraction of that cost. Yeah, so. it's unbelievable. So don't be afraid of, of checking out some old Premier drums. These hoops are really nice. Right. So they, they did that. Well, obviously, they did that because it's on there. But that was <laughs> they an option. <laughs> they did that. It was an option to get the uh, the silver and black. Love it. And it they used like a, a three-quarter inch inlay, too, which is the thicker. Like, it's kind of what Gretsch did. The thicker kind of inlay the strip. What are some other really cool... I, I, what I think maybe is the weirdest thing is they put tiny little thumb screws on the floor tom leg brackets. That's yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, they... Uh, I'm going to put my mic down. Don't yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> so I just noticed this. This came off another kit. This is what the inside looks like. So it's got this one long kind of wing Oh, that's screen. one of these jobbies? Yeah. Well, this for that, and this goes in the inside. Uh-huh. Um, but for some reason, it was missing. So this, I just never cleaned this up. But it's kind of the same kind of mechanism on the inside of these, I think. Smaller thumb. wonder why they use the smaller thumb screws. Um, I think they have to, because if you use a bigger thumb screw, it would hit the hit the, the drum there. They could have found a happy medium. They could have used one of these. They did make some improvements on these from like the 60s. So in the early... And again, I'm not like a premier expert in any shape or form, but at some point they were doing what are called pre-international sizes. And what those are just metric sizes. Oh, weird. But it wasn't all the drums. So like, I, I think that the 20 inch bass drums were never pre-international. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I read that or, or learned that somewhere. But then like, if you had a 14 floor tom, it wasn't pre-international. 
wasn't an option, but like a 12 inch tom was, a 16 inch was. So sometimes you'd get a kit and you'd have like two of the drums could take classic regular heads. And then the other ones you'd have to get custom metric heads. And Remo makes them. Right. But yes. it's just a pain. You get a kit and you're like heading it up and like, oh. Yeah, we but sell those are, at DFD. Yeah. These I are all stamped uh, international sizes. So I think that they pretty much stopped doing that when they got into the 70s. The heck does that mean? They were just doing a metric equivalent? What the so pre-international mean? means it was like pre, I don't know why they called it international. <laughs> say metric. What does it mean? I don't know. But the important part is that you couldn't put a regular head on it. I had this kit, really cool, was all cleaned up, ready to go. Went to put the rack tom head on, did not fit. Too small or too big? Too small. Too small. Right. And then, no, no, excuse me, too big. I'm getting all mixed up. The shell up. was too big or the, head mm-hmm. was, the shell was yeah. too big? And then so I ordered a hoop, and then you have to have a pre-international hoops. So they're like, enough of that. So these are all just, they take regular heads. Um, I think that they're probably a little bit undersized because, I mean, they heads fit really nice on these. You can spin them really easy. Typically, I like to have drums that are a little bit undersized because it allows the drum a, a greater tuning range. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they got away from using slotted tension rods. Uh-huh, thankfully, I hate those things so much. Yeah, so these are just regular tension rods that go into the swivel nut here. So is the, the prime era 70s, if you're going to look at Premiere then? If you get past all these weird anomalies? I think some of the rat finishes in the 60s are really cool, though. Mm. Um, but I think for me, I mean, I, I like the 70s. I, I think that for whatever reason in that area, that kind of era in general for drums, company just kind of got better mm-hmm. like the mid to late 70s slingerland they're like all right sharper edges we're going to seal the insides a lot of it got better with their qc in the 70s so that's kind of like where i i lean because stuff is better you know sounds better too i think um oh this snare i don't even talk about oh, this yeah. snare yet. this this might be one of the best sounding snares i've played this is a i'm gonna get this wrong pd6021 I think is the model name. Don't yell at me if that's because I don't know why they just didn't give it a name. Um, but this is, it's an aluminum drum, so chrome over aluminum. So they're kind of taking the Supra idea. You can see some light pitting on here if you look at the photos on the website. But I think a lot of people will get this mixed up with, they have a Olympic and a Premier version. It's just a regular steel drum. Mm-hmm. And it kind of looks similar. That, I think this has like the Beverly, I think they call them cosmic lugs on them. And the throw-off is kind of a giveaway, too. So that's the biggest difference is the lugs are different and the throw-off is different. Well, but it's an aluminum shell. Otherwise, you wouldn't know it's an aluminum. It's kind of hard to tell because the bead looks similar. And I don't know. Just like there's not like distinctive features with this drum, but it's really light. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the first thing I noticed. Um, And it sounds awesome. Unbelievably good. There's like a couple drums that people call the super killer. And I kind of would put that in the same category. And again... That era Supra, it's going to be at least a third more expensive than what yeah, you probably, got. Probably like three fifty, yeah, something like that. It's two hundred bucks for this. So there you go. Don't sleep on Premier drums, especially from the seventies. Um, they're pretty special.
All right, that's it for this week's episode. Again, if you like the show, please head over to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and write a review. If you don't mind, that gets the show ranking higher in the search results and in the charts so more drummers around the world can check it out. And until next week, have a good one. Play some drums. Definitely dig into some Gary Husband's uh, discography. And we'll see you next time. 